Hello, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. And then I suppose when I found out that her life had been quite difficult, there was a way in for me because, of course, with all our heroes, we, we want to look up to them. But if they have a few flaws, they need us. And there was something about Judy Garland that made me feel just by listening to her, I was sort of doing my bit that I was helping. My guest today is the author and journalist Susie Boyd, whose books include the best-selling memoir, My Judy Garland Life, and her latest novel, Loved and Missed. Hello, Susie. Welcome to We Can Be Heroes. This is the podcast where we discuss our heroes, heroines, and what they mean to us and why we've selected these individual people. I know you quite well, so I have an idea. I have an idea roughly (laughs) where we may be going, but I'm not sure. And you may well completely surprise me and go completely out of character seems a um, tiny bit unlikely but you never know <laughs> <laughs> should we kick off with your with the first person that you'd like to nominate i think i'd have to choose judy garland as with a lot of these things it started very young i was very very sensitive little kid i was the kind of child that you know when you go to the supermarket and there's that little ledge of abandoned items that people ditch at the last minute? Even now I try and buy one of those if I can. But I used to look at those things and just thought, oh God, I know exactly how you feel. So anyway, people were always telling me, you have got to toughen up. You cannot go through life dragging these great cascades of emotions or you're, you're always going to be miserable, which is quite a severe thing to be told when you're four or five. And... My mum took me to see The Wizard of Oz at the cinema. It was the first time I ever went to a film on the big screen. And it was also the first film that her mum had taken her to in 1939 in Salisbury, I think, when she was little. And when I saw Judy Garland, when I specifically heard her singing Over the Rainbow, I thought, here is someone whose feelings seem to be as strong as mine, And she's not ashamed of it. She's not afraid of it. She's not even embarrassed. She's not hiding it. She's leading with her strong feelings as though they're the best thing that people could have. And because at that point in my life, people were always criticising me for how much I felt, I'd come to view my strong feelings as a sort of affliction. And so the idea that there was Judy Garland saying they could be the making of you, it was the best possible news I could have heard. And so I instantly felt a sort of smash of recognition, but also approval. So I tried to find out as much about this um, young woman in a blue dress as I possibly could, quickly finding out that she'd been dead for some time already. But um, one of my brothers, they they were quite cool, my brothers, but they're also quite sentimental. And one of them, I think, nicked from a record shop the album of I Could Go On Singing. So I had that. And I also had the album of The Wizard of Oz, not 
just the songs, but the entire screenplay soundtrack. So I, um, I, I would just say the whole Wizard of Oz of an evening, like, that dog's a menace to the community. I'm taking to the show to be destroyed. It was the kind of thing you would hear if you were walking past my bedroom door. I had this duvet, a, a sort of turquoise-coloured duvet with pink stars and yellow moons, and I would just hunker down and, and Wizard of Oz to, to my heart's content. And then I suppose when I found out that her life had been quite difficult, I there was a way in for me because, of course, with all our heroes, we we want to look up to them, but if they have a few flaws they need us and there was something about Judy Garland that made me feel just by listening to her I was sort of doing my bit that I was helping and so so that sort of carried on and then I started reading more and more about her and just got more and more interested and then as I became older and sort of began to understand the kind of breadth of her talent I saw that a lot of her songs are quite silly and slight but she brings to them a kind of level and depth of complexity and richness and feeling that probably went far beyond what the people who wrote them ever would have imagined that they could have contained and she does that as well in films there's a film called in the good old summertime which is a perfectly lovely film but it's basically about a woman who works in a musical instrument shop who gets a pen pal you know not the most compelling plot you've ever had but in her hands it's sort of practically check off the level of the depth of feeling and the way she draws you in and I read a Thing about her recently where someone says that every every song she sings is kind of has got the to be or not to be element or there's somehow the way that she kind of makes every day into a matter of life and death and she was really really damaged by an intrusive press people going on and on and on about her difficulties hardly even mentioning her talent which always annoys me because you know in a way her her what the good fans call the medication issue her problems with prescription medicine are just as with all people who take a lot of drugs it's the it's the least interesting thing about her it's you know it was a it was a coping strategy for a for a for a life that had way too many demands there's one sort of 19 year period where she made I think 22 films did more than a thousand personal appearances 72 records it's just sort of the relentlessness of it just was you know required her to be superhuman particularly when she was young and so I suppose if you want to hero worship someone if you have a if you then can acquire some sort of agenda that that also helps so I feel that is a bit like with teenagers for every critical thing you say to them you've got to say six things to them about how great they are and I feel that with her if people are going to be so excited about one time she fell over they also have to say well what about that four-week run at the Palace Theatre that was extended to 19 weeks and when she finished that usherette sang her old Lang Syne and the orchestra gave her a standing ovation in the middle of a song and or at Carnegie Hall where in the first two rows she had the absolute cream of show business, a lot of whom were unbelievably cynical and hard-hearted, just crying their eyes out and calling for their mothers and just the way she really, really was able to knock people out and and I feel people have been unfair to her. No one says Frank Sinatra, was he a good dad? It's just completely irrelevant. Or I read recently that W.H. Auden took loads of amphetamines to make him more productive. No one ever mentions that. And so it sort of feels people slightly get off on running her down, which I think is something that possibly happens to women artists more than men. There's something about domestic disarray that people find more stimulating than talent and I find that a bit disappointing. I wasn't very aware of her growing up and it was only really when I 
came to London and came out. I was a Mark Almond fan and Mark Almond released an album in 1985, which was around about the time that I came out. And there's a song on it called Saint Judy, which is ostensibly about Judy Garland, but it's really about gay men's worship of these tragic heroines. What was it about her, you, do you think, that made her such a gay icon? I mean, I always feel not super well qualified to comment on that. Liza Minnelli says, of course, gay people have the best taste. Or, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's funny because um, Mark Armand made a programme about her and he interviewed me for it. And he really tried very, very hard to get me to say that Judy Garland was a saint. And I don't feel the need to say that. I said she was incredibly talented. She was the best entertainer of the 20th century, blah, blah, blah. But he, he just sort of kept saying, she's a saint, she's a saint, she's a saint. He was saying to me, why isn't she a saint? Why isn't she a saint? And I heard myself say one of the stupidest things I've said in my life. I said, well, Mark, I think of the saints as being quiet people. <laughs> <laughs> and once you hear yourself spouting 24 carat plated nonsense, it's really <laughs> time to shut up. But I'm really interested, as I'm sure are you, in what makes people hero worship type of people. And I was thinking about that and I thought, one thing with me is that I read tons of Victorian novels, probably when I was a bit too young to know what the hell was going on. And so I got used to really strongly rooting for someone whose life wasn't going very well over hundreds and hundreds of pages. And I also thought my mum was quite a hero to me in that she brought up five children on her own with hardly any money and obviously found it hard to cope, but she did cope just about. And, and so she was a a big example of someone who had to flex a lot of courage just to get through the day. And then also having a sort of glamorous absent father, I'm sure that makes number one hero worshippers throughout the world. And also just thinking about the sort of relaxation of it, the idea of spending quite a lot of time as a kid with a strong imagination, just really thinking the world of someone, it actually lifts you up. People think of hero worship as being a bit of a a sado's pursuit. In my book somewhere I say it's lower, in my world it has lower status even than sniffing glue. I mean that's people just roll their eyes and think what could be more tragic than a fan. I think also when I was growing up there was a lot of cynicism around me, a lot of sharpness, a lot of people who were more interested in what they didn't like than what they did like and I found that really dispiriting and I think the idea of hero worshipping was this kind of defiant stance against cynicism and I think it suited me in that way as well. There was a very famous quote from George Michael back in the day when he was at the peak of his solo career and he said it isn't something extra that makes us die it's something missing and I always felt that the people that I looked up to there had to be an element of being slightly fragile even if they were being super heroic at the same time because without that how can you measure the heroism yeah there's no way in as well there's a little chink in which you can you can feel a tiny bit of importance. An interesting fact about George Michael, he's quite a big person in my life now because he's buried next to my dad. Is he? Yeah, I know. Wow. Um, you mentioned your book there, that's My Judy Garland Life, which was when I first met you, I think. And you very kindly said you weren't a huge fan of Judy Garland, but you're becoming quite a fan of mine. <laughs> I did, I remember I saying I remember that. rightly. <laughs> I did. And you came and you read at my literary salon and you brought some Judy memorabilia with you. What did you bring? Well, I'm not sure what I had then. I've got some white shoes that she wore in A Child Is Waiting, which are about, would fit a sort of seven-year-old because they're so tiny and dainty. But rather poignantly, they've got the word Judy written on in her handwriting on the bottom in Biro. You feel like, God, she's living in a world where people literally nick your shoes. I've got a 
brooch made out of a tiger tooth. People just send me stuff in the post. I got a coral lipstick that was from her uh, sort of beauty trunk, a Max Factor one. But the, the best thing I've got, which a friend gave me, is a, a white genuine leatherette address book. It's like a file of facts. It's got it's a ring binder format and it's got everyone famous you could possibly imagine from that time. So you've got post office next to Porter Cole and there's an amazing page that's got Betty Davis. Davis, Sammy Jr. and Day Doris all in all in a row. And some of it's written, typed by, by a secretary, which also speaks of an unchaotic life that you would have your dress book all typed. But quite a lot is written in her handwriting of extra new people she's met or or that kind of thing. And, and um, if you've had a bit of a wild night, it's quite tempting to sort of think, oh, I'll give Frank Sinatra a call. <laughs> 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 but I never have. You'll be glad to hear. You have met Liza and Lorna Love. And her son, Joe, as well, I met. Oh, I, yes. went, I went to the um, Judy Garland Festival when I was writing the book, which takes place every year in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, where she grew up. And um, it's quite a strange occasion, as you can imagine. I went to a munchkin lunch luncheon with a few surviving genuine munchkins. And one of them said to me, I'm proud I was a munchkin deer, but I can't be one every day. <laughs> I find it fascinating that she still that she still resonates. When I first joined Time Out in the 90s, there was people like Jim Bailey doing his entire act. He's the best interpreter of her there's ever been. And he allowed me once to watch him turn into her. He started off as Jim and he was very, very slowly making up as her. And he had her scent, which was the scent called Jolie Madame which she called Jolly Madam. And he, it was funny because I thought to myself, you are literally watching paint dry, but he completely changed. It wasn't like he was turning into her. He just did turn into her. And after about 20 minutes, he be the atmosphere in the room became very hostile towards me. And it was as if, as he turned into Judy, he was thinking, what the fuck is this strange woman doing in here? Why is she here? And it was quite difficult for me. And then I suddenly realized Perhaps as Judy would have needed, he needed me to pay lots and lots and lots of compliments. So I then said, I'm so grateful to you for allowing me this special access and something that must feel intimate and possibly too uncomfortable for you. And I'm so looking forward to the show and I've been looking forward to it all month. And, and I said about, and all of it was true, but I just sort of thought he doesn't want to be disturbed, but I realized he needed, he needed quite a lot from me. And then he got stronger and stronger. And then we were sort of almost friends at the end. I was glad I realised in time because I thought that that would have been presumptuous to speak to him as he was sort of in his trance. But as he became her, he needed he needed a lot from me. I hadn't seen him performing before I interviewed him. I, I interviewed him as a preview for a show he was doing in London. And yeah. this was in the days pre-internet. So you couldn't go on YouTube and look at something. So I didn't know what to expect. He kept stressing to me that it wasn't a drag act. When I saw it, it completely blew me away. I mean, I was completely, I wasn't prepared for it. The emotional punch of it and how it really felt like something supernatural was going on, that he was channeling her in some way. It was a really extraordinary thing to watch. It was bizarrely uncamp because it was so... Yeah, not camp at all. It's funny because I was introduced to Jim Bailey first in a book by the famous literary journalist and editor Francis Wyndham, who just pretty much rediscovered Jean Rhys. And he wrote a book called The Theatre of Embarrassment. And, and there's a passage about going to see Jim Bailey and him having seen Judy and then feeling so knocked out by it. That feeling of part of a theatrical experience being a hope crossed with the complete fear that something's going to go wrong and how both performers sort of that was 
part of how they express themselves and yeah it was I was so glad to have had that time there's a very good essay written a, about Jim Bailey recently by an American biographer that's that's really really powerful and he was taken to see Jim Bailey by his dad when he was seven and really knocked out by it what a great dad <laughs> I know that's exactly what I thought let's go and see a man impersonating a woman who died many many years ago but you're gonna love it kids yeah <laughs> but he was right if I think the thing that I loved about Judy Garland which is her power to communicate completely neat unadulterated feelings, great projections of feelings with no prevarication, just utterly direct. That is by definition the opposite of cool. So anyone who's interested in cool is not gonna like Judy Garland, which the other thing is that she was, I mean, even in the thirties and forties, she sort of laughed about being considered old fashioned. And I suppose if you think what she was doing in the late sixties and what else was going on there, or if you think even in the 50s and Chuck Berry and all that, you know, so so I suppose the idiom of it for some people is sort of dated. And then people who like very, very squeaky clean stars, then she falls down in that respect because there were there was sort of difficulty and squalor in her life. So, so I think the combination of those things made her fall out of favour for a while. But it feels like it's really recognised the kind of extreme level of her talent people are beginning to recognise again and her ability to transform quite banal material into something that was very, very deep and sort of knock you out. You're allowed to like her again. You mentioned the Carnegie Hall Judy, Judy, Judy show. And I immediately thought of Rufus Wainwright, who is painfully cool. I mean, he's so cool. And his embrace of her, that must have, that must have had a big impact in terms of people's perceptions. I reviewed that when it was at, actually at Carnegie Hall. He then did it here at the London Palladium and I saw that too. And the show was very different in America and very differently received in that in America, most of the people were there for Judy at Carnegie Hall and at the Palladium, everyone was there for Rufus and most people didn't even know who Judy Garland was. So it was a funny mixture, but there's a bit in one of the songs, um, You Go To My Head. And I, in the original, performance she says you go to my head and I forgot the goddamn words and sort of and then gets back into it and in Carnegie Hall there were waves of recognition because you could tell people were thinking oh I wonder if he's gonna um, fluff those lines and you go to my head but in London when she did it there was even a review that said Rufus seemed a little unaware of some of the lyrics at some point So that was quite funny, but that probably that probably did help in a way. I mean, I, I know him a tiny bit and I talked to him about it and he said that he saw it as a sort of marathon, you know, that just the, um, because there are so many numbers and the, the sort of tonality varies so wildly from songs that are designed to knock you out with sort of slighter ones. And then, and then some slight songs, like there's one called Do It Again, which is, in other people's hands is quite a sort of flirty up-tempo song about a kind of naughty kiss that shouldn't have happened. But in her, when she sings it, and also to his credit, when Rupert sung it, it's someone who's been thrown a lifeline. This kiss that should or shouldn't have happened is going to change her life, is going to keep her alive, and it's got to carry on. So completely transforming this slightly saucy kind of you know, perfectly nice, but really nothing-y song into something you'll never forget. 
you know so that that's a good example of her having her own way with things you could say it was an incredibly you know it's meant to be the best night in show business even people who aren't crazy about that say her aren't crazy about her say that and um so quite quite a quite a thing to take on your book has had a big impact and it was made into a play as well, wasn't it? And it also brought someone out of a coma. A friend of mine I read it to her bloke who was in a coma in a hospital because he was a great Judy Garland fan, which I know sounds a bit unlikely. And and, and, and he woke up, although so quite soon after that, she decided he wasn't right for her anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't my fault. Um, and then, yes, it was made into a play at the, at the Nottingham Playhouse. And that was literally having your life made into a music it was quite an extreme experience for me and I did go a bit mad afterwards and it took me a while to to uh, recover if someone says I want to make your life into a musical pool just take a take a minute I don't think it'll happen somehow but I have seen somebody betray me on stage so we have that in common Mm -hmm. Alexis Gregory performed his play Riot Act which is about three generations of gay activism and actually opens with the Stonewall Riots and Michael remembering talking about Judy Garland. I like it when you hear people saying by that point and then Judy Garland died and then we'd had enough. Yeah, (laughs) it was very strange for me when I saw Alexis doing that. That was partly because it was verbatim so he'd interviewed me and it was my word but it was also just seeing somebody representing you on stage. I mean I love it, it's a huge huge compliment But it's a very odd thing to experience, isn't it? Yes. And I think for me, particularly because the play, perhaps yours did as well, but featured some of the most painful moments of my life. It didn't occur to me that it would be that painful. There was a a very sad event in the play. And I think it's sort of to do with someone dying. And I think I had possibly sort of under grieved that in reality. So a a whole wave of sort of fresh grief was released. And that that was a lot to deal with as well. If you had to sum up what it is about Judy that makes you love her so much, how would you say it? I think it would be that she taught me that all feelings, however painful, are to be prized. And I think that 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 was very valuable. And also, in my sort of daft personal campaign against cynicism, that there are worse things in life than being taken for a ride. And I think the idea of being a mug, particularly if you've had a difficult childhood and maybe haven't had the level of treatment you would like, the things you do to avoid being or seeming a mug can really make you narrow your life. And I think she helped me with with some of that. And also that at very hard times in my life, I listened to her a lot. And I had a sense from her that she was saying, can you believe how fucking terrible this life can be? But I'm still singing. She made glamour seem a bit moral as if putting your best foot forward and really going all out for life as often as you can had a glamour to it. And it was sort of your duty if you think we've all got one life and and to really give it its best possible chance. You know, I, I got that from her. And even though her life was difficult and often did go wrong, you know, she picked herself up with such speed and courage and that was really inspiring as well. You've convinced me she's definitely a hero. Uh, Who are we going to talk about next? Well, I'm torn between the poet John Berryman and also my mum, but I am thinking of my my mum a lot today. And I know that if there's one thing more tragic than hero worshiping, Judy Garland is probably hero worshiping your mum, but never mind. (laughs) In some ways, she was a bit of an inspiration for my last novel, Loved and Missed, that came out quite recently. I lost her in 2016. And one way of mourning her was really trying to 
go back through her life and think of the things that she'd had to deal with the things that weren't easy and the things that that went really really well and she was born into a quite a sort of strange family her dad was a soldier and her mum was basically sort of highly strong for a living and she I think found their the way they appeared very very conventional whilst being completely mad quite difficult to deal with and she came to London when she was 17 or 18 and went to art school and had a lot of children as a single mum very quickly and sort of I think surrounded herself with a luxurious amount of children and just had a life that was really different to the one that she was born to and there's a sort of famous story at her her parents gave a party for her when she was 21 and, and she was pregnant and they'd invited all young kind of military people for her to meet and possibly marry and my mum as the story goes said to her mum that she was expecting at the party and her mum said I don't remember you getting married darling and you know oh. this is in sort of in in the mid 50s where if you were unlucky you could be put in a mental hospital for being an unmarried mother kind of thing which she she styled it out and and um she did manage and and then before I was born when she had four small children she <laughs> bought a three-masted schooner and sailed all around the Baltic using the ship as a cargo ship and there's all stories about um they ran out of food and she went out in a glass bottom boat and speared eels with a great big spear and, and just sort of she, she just sort of um she was so bold and such a pioneer in some way but it was funny after she died some of the letters said that she was like a a meadow flower and other ones compared her to a pioneer because she was she was quite sort of fragile in some ways but she was just I don't know, she had such an idea about what life should be like. And when I was a kid, I, I'm quite a lot younger than the others. And she had a shop selling old fashioned clothes on what would now be called vintage, although it was pretty well one up from second hand then. And we had a basement kitchen that was permanently hung with all the stuff from the shop. So as you pass through the room, a kind of pair of Victorian bloomers and a sequin jacket might fall on your head. Very formative. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, this is the late 1980s. So I had this kind of, I remember coming in from school once and saying, oh, that smells lovely. And mum said, oh, it's just some Victorian 90s boiling up on the cooker kind of things. And and I helped her sewing and, and um, she'd buy like a old, a load of old cardigans and then we'd embroider little flowers on them to make them look um, more Saturday night-ish and so I helped her do that and quite often she sat up sewing till two or three o'clock in the morning to get stuff ready for the shop it was so mad because the she bought things for quite a lot of money sold them for a tiny bit more and we had no money so it was a sort of the most labor intensive work and sometimes when I came down in the morning she would have sewn the garment she was sewing to what she was wearing because she was so tired and she would have fallen asleep in the chair kind of thing so we had this strange sort of cottage industry going on together which was sort of feminine and romantic but completely insane in terms of keeping the show on the road and stuff so that was that, <laughs> that was a bit strange she always had a thing that she'd rather sell something to a nice woman who is going to wear it and have a lovely time than, than to a dealer whereas with traditionally you sell things cheaper to dealers but she felt she didn't want to do that and so she it was quite painful she had a shop for a while but then she had a stall in a market and people beat her down on the prices quite a lot people who had a lot more money than she did would say I'll give you eight quid for that instead of ten quid just for sport kind of thing thinking oh we're in a market and that was 
that was a bit heartbreaking to watch. And I had a little stall at her feet with things that weren't quite good enough for the big stall. And I make little mixed bags with buttons and um, bits of fallen apart necklaces and stuff. And so I had this sort of mini, mini Susie stall because she was called Susie and I'm called Susie. So we had, I had my mini little stall at her feet and that was quite, quite nice. It was all, it was all a bit bonkers, but. Were you aware that, that, that your family life was different to the norm that's promoted to us? It's funny, I, I guess when you're a kid, you have to believe it's normal, don't you? Otherwise you sort of explode and die. But my youngest child has just been doing her GCSEs and I was thinking that when I was doing mine, although I was doing my GCSEs, what I was really trying to do was get my brother into rehab. And my dad had quite a lot of money and lived on the other side of London from us. And I had got him to agree to pay for the rehab but he said there are three good rehab places which I think was farm place clouds I can't remember what the third one was and he said any one of those I'll pay for so I thought brilliant talk to my brother dad says he'll pay for you to go into rehab what do you think just come back when I'm not in a coma kind of thing anyway he's then said I'll do it so I thought brilliant went over to dad's on the bus said he's on so we're all excited got the place then of course my brother has to have his pre-rehab disappearance for four days spree and the rehab place is calling me saying where is he we we can't hold the place indefinitely and so in the end we lost the place and my brother came back again I got a place at the not the one of these three but the fourth one on the list that the GP had given me and that place I went over to dad's and dad said I don't know if this place is good enough and I just said to him please just work with me we've got to we've got to do this and so then I got my brother to agree to that. I said he could on a spree, but he had to be back 24 hours. You know, went and did my biology exam, came back, whatever. And um, we got him in and I was hugely relieved, just sort of, you know, this is a lesson in how to become a codependent person. But anyway, I was hugely relieved, got him in. And then that was the Tuesday, I think. And on the Sunday night, there was a ring at the bell. It was my brother and this guy he'd met in rehab called Martin and ha 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 in the grounds of the rehab place there was a patch of magic mushrooms and they'd taken them all and they got kicked out and I called down to my mum and I said oh he's he's back again and and I remember she looked at him she looked at me and she said why don't we all go out for a kebab and somehow that was just the perfect thing to say it was just so awful and you know well you know grilled meat is gonna count And, and I think of that just the sort of style and the madness just that expresses her heroism so well. Yeah, I just need to say for people that are listening who may not know that your dad was Lucien Freud. Were your mum and dad on good terms when you were a kid? They were. Um, I mean, he worked all the time, as you know. Yeah. But, you know, he came to birthdays and and um, and that kind of thing. It wasn't really on a thing of being on good terms. We just all did whatever he wanted all the time. <laughs> <laughs> to work for everyone there was such a sense to him that when you were with him the sun was just shining so so brightly that we were all sort of dazzled I guess you mentioned your novel and how your mum and your relationship helped inspire it can we talk a little bit about the book I've read it and absolutely loved loved and missed I think it's your best novel so it's about a a woman who basically takes on her granddaughter because her daughter is is lost to drugs that's the basic premise isn't it yeah And I think a sense that 
this time she might get it right somehow. It's funny, I did an event around it recently and someone said they'd never read a book where the baby had such a strong and fully formed personality. <laughs> what have been my literary inspirations for that? And I was thinking it's true, when you read a book, you hardly ever think, wow, that baby's got a lot of character. I'm not one of these people who adores babies. I like some, and I, but don't go a bundle on, on others. I think there's so much negativity talked about babies, understandably so, because it, for years no one was allowed to ever say anything against them. But I wanted to make a really blinding knockout baby. So I was particularly pleased to have that question. There was a book of philosophy written about six years ago saying that all the big questions in life, babies have the answer. And I thought <laughs> it was such a lovely idea and I read it, but it didn't, didn't have that ring of the truth, Paul. <laughs> Isn't that a cute idea for a book? It is a good idea for a book. I don't have children of my own, but I, I have a very lovely little nephew who's very little and I, I dote on. And I can remember when he was a baby, you're so, you're so conscious of the fact that they're taking everything in. When Archie was maybe just one month old or six weeks old, and it was Christmas, and I'd got him a Ziggy Stardust baby crow, and we had a Space Oddity playing, and he was on his mat on the floor. We were, and I was turning him around in time to space oddity. <laughs> you think this is all I've ever wanted? Floating in a most peculiar way. Oh. <laughs> Thankfully, his parents indulged me. And, um, and now he's already a very big Bowie fan at the age of six. How extraordinary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who would have thought? But I, I, there is a thing in the book about the grandmother in question is pretty lonely. When you, it's never stated, but you can tell she's been pretty lonely all her life and that the baby brings a hell of a lot of joy and cheer and also sort of wonder that thing of some a baby going completely insane when it's face to face with a daffodil or something. And that, that wonder that you, if you spend a lot of time with them, it can be quite sort of um, contagious and that, that she gets that and that there's a sense in which by um, rejecting her love and care, her, her daughter has sort of done her wrong. And also a sense that by giving her the childhood that's ended in this desperate life, the mother has done her wrong. And the baby then becomes a sort of, a sort of transaction because by bringing up the baby, the, the mother can sort of make amends and help, help the daughter. But by allowing her to have the baby, the baby's mother is also making amends to her mother, the baby's grandmother. So it's this sort of complicated layering of compensation and support that's sort of muddied between them that I was I was interested in. And also what it feels like in life to have a second chance, you know, which often doesn't happen that you could, you know, how, how you would do things differently if you were aware of the mistakes that you'd made or the mistakes that could be made. One of the things about the book is that there's quite a lot about unconditional love in it and that the however however difficult and awful the drug addict daughter is the mum always keeps the door open even though that sometimes means having her you know clock radio and her camera nicked and stuff like that she just she just sort of has decided that she's going to keep the door open which is quite an anarchic stance particularly if you think of the it's almost a cliche, the sort of tough love thing and that you've got to reject them and all that. But she feels so rejected by her daughter because her daughter doesn't want to play mums and daughters with her. And it's meant to be very ambiguous, the sense to which she's being sort of dangerously codependent or whether actually with a lot of insight and knowledge, she's, she's being completely full of love. And that that's a sort of tension in the book that as is her taking over the baby because 
when she takes the baby, the daughter doesn't fully agree to it. And the daughter does ask for the baby back and she doesn't give the baby back. So one version of it is she's sort of, she's stolen the baby and she gives her a lot of money as well, which as we all know, is the first thing you should never do to a drug addict. She gives the mother of the baby a lot of money to sort of justify her, her taking over of the baby. And that's also morally very dodgy thing to do. So I wanted to have this ambiguity. Some people see the the mother grandmother character as Ruth as being a complete hero and other people find her actions extremely questionable and I wanted it to work for people who know tons about addiction and people who know hardly anything and lots of people who read it who are addicts or have been addicts feel that the treatment that is afforded to the drug addict is exactly what they would have wished for for themselves. As I'm so much the getting people into rehab expert, as boasted about earlier, <laughs> I, I remember in the 80s in rehab, you weren't on the list of what you're allowed to bring in. You weren't allowed to wear shorts. And the idea that you can't wear shorts because it's likely to trigger lust in your co-inmates is, is quite a stretch. Going back to your mum for a minute, what did that relationship give you? I suppose we were tremendously close. I mean, we were like a little couple for years. We used to do everything together. And she brought a tremendous creative zeal to life. Like before we were even at school, we all knew how to draw or paint, sew, make Dolly's clothes, knit, crochet. She brought a lot of um, making of things always to, to family life, which was lovely. She was completely unmaterialistic. One Christmas, her best friend who had a rich husband gave her a really beautiful dress, like an Yves Saint Laurent dress or something. And my she lent it to my 13-year-old sister who sort of wore it to a party and it got trashed. And she then sort of hid it at the back of a cupboard because she just didn't know how to tell her. And she was completely fine with that kind of thing, which is pretty amazing. She always made everybody's friends feel completely welcome in the house. And although we didn't really have much, she was delighted if there were more people for any meal or, you know, that I didn't really sort of realise how I'm sort of not like that to my shame. I, that sort of thing of thinking the plan changing or if there's suddenly another eight extra people, I wouldn't think, oh, I know, I'll just make a load of pancakes and popcorn and hope for the best or whatever. <laughs> she was very good like that. Or there was a sense every so often when we just completely ran out of money. Once we went to stay with some people in the country and she said, I don't know how we're going to get back. And I remember she was playing a forfeit game with one of the kids from the other family and she got the forfeit to be that we had to hitchhike and then sort of, try, you know, sort of things like, I mean, that sounds a bit desperate, but in a funny sort of way, she had a plan and she, she was very kind and her heart really went out to people who weren't doing so well or people who were struggling. And she very often had someone sort of staying with us who was in trouble and she never ever made anyone feel less than because they're in a bit of a state or a muddle and that was that as well wasn't easy but it was a it was a very powerful thing to to be around and that she she just sort of had a real sense of humanity for someone because they were a person kind of thing and she did sort of lead her life in accordance with what she believed and she absolutely loved children so if there was a sort of kid who was bored she'd suddenly say oh my god look at that rabbit in the garden and then we all knew there was no rabbit in the garden but she'd run upstairs find a soft toy rabbit from the garden go out the back door sort of hide it under a basket come back in and say let's go and find it <laughs> and, and when she was 70 she would even take my nephew to the skate park all day on a Sunday and just sit there with one coffee and a, and a paperback and just looking up and admiring the tricks he could do and you know so that must be pretty unusual in your London 70-year-old.
feels pretty wrong not having her. It feels, life feels much less without her in it. It was her sixth anniversary last week and I went to where she's buried in Highgate Cemetery and I found myself singing to her, if you were the only girl in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And the sort of groundsman at Highgate walked past me and just thought, oh my God. (laughs) I wonder what George Michael thought. I know, the plot thickens. I like the idea that George thinks she's a nice girl. She comes up here a lot. Thank you so much for sharing these stories and for being such a great guest. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. My thanks again to Susie Boyd and her new novel, Loved and Missed, is out now in paperback. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. She wasn't like any man or woman that I had ever experienced before. And I remember saying to my parents, but, but like, but what is she? And my parents just went, she's Grace Jones. This has been We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burstyn. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.